House for Infested Planet. It is uh, the beginning of March, the eve of Titanfall, think of it as that, uh, and my game of the week is not StarCraft Root Wars. Root War? Wars. Is it just one war? It's multiple wars, right? There's a bunch of broods and you fight all of them. So StarCraft Brood Wars, not my game of the week. Uh, we'll be talking uh, with uh, Alex Vostrov in just a little bit about Infested Planet. Um, but uh, first I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, The Eve of Titanfall. Uh, that comes out next week, I believe. Uh, certainly a huge AAA release. Um, probably, likely one of the bigger releases of the year, um, and actually a very good game. I think a lot of us have played the beta. Uh, I've seen a, a fair bit of the game, and I, I quite like it. I'm definitely looking forward to Titanfall. Uh, I think Respawn has done a really good job with d- designing it. I love a lot of the, the unique things that it does in the shooter space. We can call it that, right? Is that too highfalutin? Shooter space? Uh Call of Duty genre, whatever Call of Duty clones. Um, at any rate, Respawn has advanced to that genre very nicely. There's a lot of cool things in Titanfall that you don't see in your typical Call of Duty uh, or uh, other shooters. So I'm looking forward to that coming out. Uh, it's obviously going to be a big deal for EA. Hopefully it won't screw up the online component. The servers won't blow up or... Uh, it won't fall apart like SimCity or whatever. Uh, but like I said, a lot of us have already played the beta. Uh, a lot of us have seen the, the full game. I think it's a great game. I'm really looking forward to it. But here's the funny thing that's happening to me on the way to Titanfall. Although I'm looking forward to it, I, I kind of feel like the competition for my attention for Titanfall, um, you know, the time I'll spend with it, isn't other similar games. Here are the things that I am going to have to tear myself away from to play Titanfall. One of them is, of course, Infested Planet, which I'll be talking about shortly with with the designer, Alex. Um, a, a pretty generous game. There's a lot of content in there, uh, and but it's a little indie game. You know, it was made by uh, mainly Alex. He mentions uh, two or three other people in our interview that I'm about to, that you're about to hear. Uh, he mentions a few other people who helped him make it, but it's a very small indie development. Um, the other thing I'm going to have to tear myself away from to play Titanfall is a weird, weird kind of Terraria clone called Windforge. Uh, and the reason, I, I normally, the Terraria, Minecraft, Starbound type games bounce off of me pretty easily, um, with maybe the exception of Don't Starve. Um, because I find myself not really caring about mining ore to craft my chest plate or whatever it is that I'm going to use the ore for. Uh, but one of the things that Windforge does is it puts that that free crafting, freely destructible procedural environment in the context of a typical RPG. You know, you've got a skill tree. Uh, it's not really a tree. Uh, you've got different attributes you level up, and at certain thresholds they unlock new distinct skills and abilities. So you've got that. You've got a a world with different uh, kind of factions to work with and quests. Um, It's a much more typical RPG framework. Uh, And yet, it's a fully destructible, procedurally generated world where you're running around mining stuff and building a house, a mobile house in this case. It's a flying house. Um, and you're, uh, you're hunting whales. <laughs> it's, I don't know where they got that, but by golly, it's pretty awesome. These whales are very cool. So Windforge 
a huge open world uh, to explore and to play around in. And again, a, a very small indie development. Um, that is what Titanfall is going to be competing with as far as the time I spend. Uh, another thing I've been playing lately is a free-to-play uh, space combat action game called Star Conflict. I talked a little bit about it on the podcast last week where we discussed uh, Diablo 3. Um, and uh, Star Conflict is a, a really good shooter. I mean, it's got some of the foibles of a free-to-play game. Uh, I really hate how long you have to wait to get into a match. But when I'm actually playing it, there's a lot of meat there. Uh, it's a very well-made, mouse-driven space sim. Action slash sim, I guess we would call it. Uh, that's also competing for my attention with Titanfall. Uh, a little game called One Finger Death Punch... <laughs> Which uh, we had a fellow named Tim James who wrote up some articles for it on the front page of Quarter to Three, uh, and he was very effusive about it. He was very enthusiastic about it, and I I read what he wrote, of course, and thought, well, I'll have to try that at some point, and then quickly didn't try it. Well, it's on Steam now, and by golly, everything Tim James said and then then some is absolutely right. Uh, what an incredible masterpiece of over-the-top minimalist glee. Uh, One Finger Death Punch. I, I find myself sitting down to just play it for just a few minutes, and there goes a half hour. Um, so that also, when I'm playing Titanfall, that's time I'm not playing One Finger Death Punch. I just got back into Tales of Maj Eyal. Am I even saying that right? Tome is how it's kind of known. Uh, Tales of, then M-E, it used to be Tales of Middle-Earth. Um, the Solzance or whoever company didn't like that, so they changed the name to Tales of another M-E, which is Majel, whatever that means. Uh, it's a it's a wide-open, what do you call it, a roguelike? Yeah, I guess it's a roguelike. Uh, permadeath, crazy classes, lots of cool abilities in the classes. Again, a procedurally generated world. Uh, the thing with that is they finally fixed their achievements on Steam. So when you're playing and you earn an achievement, it actually works. And for whatever reason, I can't explain it, for whatever reason, that 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 works on me. If there's an achievement, I that's something to chase. Um, so uh, that also, it's one reason I might not play Titanfall, because I've got to level up my character in Tales of, Tales of uh, Maj Eyal. Another game that I played recently, very much a a clone, or we could, we could say inspired by Binding of Isaac, is a game called Our Darker Purpose. And one of the things I really liked about Our Darker Purpose is the art style, which is very much like the uh, Edward Gorey drawings. Um, uh, one of the problems I had with Our Darker Purpose is it your advancement was very slow, and it was a prohibitively difficult game, and because it is, again, permadeath, you die and you're starting at the beginning. Uh, there's a lot of playing that same content over and over and over again. So when I wrote the review, uh, I wasn't crazy about it. I think I gave it two stars. Basically, I, I didn't like it. Well, they uh, took those comments, not necessarily from me, but from uh, some of their, their fans and people who were playing the game. Uh, the developers took some of these complaints to heart, and they issued a patch recently that changed the pacing of Our Darker Purpose quite a bit. Um, I sat down to try it, and in one life, made it almost all the way through the first chapter, which is uh, is great. Um, you know, it, it, it suddenly felt like the pacing was, was addressed. Uh, it's a much snappier game now, and one I'm looking forward to spending more time with. 
So, uh, what am I going to do when Titanfall comes out next week? Uh, I'm going to have to make some tough choices. You know, sorry EA, but uh, some of these indie games, they're definitely competing for some of the same mind share. Maybe not the same genre, but as a gamer, the time we spend, uh, the, it can just as easily be with an indie game as a huge, big-budget, uber-hyped release like Titanfall. So... Next week will be interesting. But this week, uh, I would like you to meet uh, Alex Vostrov and a game he has made called Infested Planet, uh, which, good God, I really like this thing a lot. Um, so uh, let's, let's talk to Alex, and uh, I'll be back afterwards. Let's rock! Alex Vostrov, this must be for you a, a very exciting day, uh, given that... Um, I think you've been working on this for is it at least two years? Three and a half years. Three and a half years to get to this day. So tell folks listening, what is significant about this day for you? Uh, you know, this is kind of, um, it's not just a game coming out for me. It's kind of a culmination of, of kind of a journey that I started like three and a half years ago or, you know, mm-hmm. almost four years ago now. Uh, because... Uh, I went from, you know, kind of walking, uh, working on a normal uh, job, normal, reliable job, and then, uh, you know, first these strange thoughts started appearing in my head, like, what if I could quit my job and make games for a living? And then I went, no, 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 that's crazy, what are you thinking about? Uh, but eventually I just uh, kind of had to do it, and uh, I quit my job, and I said, what's the first game I'm going to make? And I decided to take a small uh, prototype that I had, and I said, I think it's going to take me three months. <laughs> Uh, and uh, here we are. Uh, you know that not all that uh, time was towards um, the infested planet. Uh, you know, some of that time was actually spent working on a game that, strangely enough, comes out uh, tomorrow as well, which is uh, Eats uh, Eats Two that Clay Entertainment is going to be releasing on iOS, and it's a bit later it's going to come out on uh, on PC. But yeah, you know, it's it's just been this huge journey, and and. It's kind of been like if I can't do this, I cannot be an indie game developer, right? Wait, so you have you have two games coming out this week? Yeah, kind of. It's That's you know the the Eats was something I was a programmer for you know for a certain period of time. I you know I I was a bit less involved in it for the last year, but uh, yeah, that's kind of true. Uh, now tell me real quick because I mainly want to talk about Infested Planet, which is yes. what's caught my attention. What is the second game? I can't. Are you saying Eats? Yes, Eats. Like uh, like food. Yes, it's uh, it's called E E T S. Oh, okay. What are, what is yeah. eats? Well, you know, uh, if you know the Clay guys, right? They're kind of right. primarily known for um, Don't, for Don't Starve, Starve and yeah. uh, and Shank. Shank. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but their first game was actually Eats, and there's this kind of cross between Lemmings and um, you know the Impossible Machine. And your job is it's a puzzle game, and you have to guide this kind of uh, creature through uh, through the puzzle and and get him to get to the end goal, you know, to eat this big cake. Okay. And, uh, there are all these contraptions, right? So I was involved in that, you know, kind of in the middle. I don't know what kind of really possessed me to say uh, I think I should work in two projects at a time, but I did that. Uh, so it's just been this uh, incredible, I don't know, journey through this process of finishing a game and learning all about that. And finally it's out. So it's like, well, maybe I, I can actually make games. So Eats sounds really cute and all, but... I am here as a hardcore gamer who is super into real-time strategy games, and from that perspective, Infested Planet has really caught uh, my both my attention and my time. Um, 
it's sort of from that angle that I approach it, but I don't think it's it's by any means only for hardcore RTS players, but it does tap into a lot of what I like about hardcore RTSs. So, like I said, Eats, really cute. Uh, I wish you the best on it, but by golly, let's talk some Infested yes. Planet. Um, so, do you have a background in, like, RTSs, uh, or did you just accidentally make a kind of a, and I don't want to diminish what it does, because it's a smaller scale RTS. Uh, it's not something vast like StarCraft II or something like that. Um, but it, I, I, it strikes me that it, it seems like the guy who made this really understands hardcore RTSs that aren't made that often anymore. Is that is that true of you? Is that what you're into? Uh, yeah, I mean, I prefer games that are a bit more thinky, uh-huh. right? Like, uh, you know, if you throw, like, Crusader Kings my way, I'm going to go, like, go, like, glorious, you know, okay. give me more, right? Uh, so definitely I'm kind of bent more towards that side of games, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, not, like, you know, I play some platformers and such, but that's not what excites me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know whether I can claim any sort of special insight into RTSs, but certainly Infested Planet was kind of made with that in mind of, like, well, uh, what's wrong with RTS games? You know, how can I make it better? So give me the elevator pitch that you sort of used as you were working on Infested Planet to keep it focused. Because that's one of the things that I admire about it. There's a lot of detail in it. There's a lot of options. Um, there's a lot of configurability. But it's a very, uh, and again, I don't want to diminish it, but in a way it's, it's very small and very focused. It kind of goes straight to those peak RTS moments that you used to have to play a half-hour match to get to. Um, so give me your elevator pitch that you used to keep yourself focused on what Infested Planet does. I think uh, for me it's kind of it's not, I don't, actually funnily enough I didn't have an elevator pitch, uh, okay. but uh, the game started out you know uh, I think kind of animated by several things I wanted to go for. One is uh, you know that moment in StarCraft like the first StarCraft where you were just you would just have two groups collide and just like the group of marines would just dig into the group of zerglings and and then there'd just be zergling guts flying everywhere yep and you're like yes this feels good uh i kind of kept think coming back to that moment and think and i think partially it was also motivated by you know when warcraft 3 came it came out um they 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 made the choice to move towards kind of more smaller team gameplay and i was like i really miss that feeling of two groups colliding and and kind of having a larger scale fight there mm-hmm and also, interestingly enough, um, and this is not really widely known, but Infested Planet started out as a freeware game that I released way, 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 way back called Attack of the Paper Zombies. Well, you can sort of tell just by looking at screenshots of Paper Zombies that they share DNA. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, uh, you know, that now Attack of the Paper Zombies is kind of a very primitive version of that, right? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's kind of the Pac-Man as opposed to everything. You know, it's the Pong. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, originally, that game was kind of conceived as uh, four guys being trapped in a house, and zombies are coming. You have you have to survive until dawn. And it was this kind of desperate feeling of being surrounded on all sides, and uh, you know you're trying to rig traps, kind of predator style with swinging logs and stuff like that. Uh, and a lot of that, you know, the, the, that zombie thing didn't really make it into the game. But that feeling of desperation, being surrounded, and stuff coming at you everywhere, and you kind of being constantly under pressure, I think actually stayed in the game until now, and you can still feel it there. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one of the that that strikes me as like a horde mode, like something in Gears of War, where your guys are standing there and all the zombies are pouring in at you. And I think we can all appreciate that kind of gameplay. But what I feel you've done that's unique. Um, Maybe not unique, but it actually kind of reminds me of another game I want to bring up. What I feel makes Infested Planet stand out and makes it different from 
sort of a smaller group of RTS puzzles is there's a on each map there is this idea of mutations. Now what what you've got on the map is you've got your initially five dudes and they're these alien hives that spit out aliens and the aliens stream towards uh, the good guys and the good guys fight them. That's pretty straightforward. Uh, you could just go out and destroy the hives and win the game. Uh, what is what really is unique about Infested Planet for me is the way that the the hives will push back as you destroy them, and you call these uh, mutations. Um, so when you destroy a hive, um, and I don't know if it's every hive or if it's at certain intervals, but as you are taking out the hives, they start to push back by adding new kind of global tweaks to the gameplay. Um, give it. Give us examples of a couple of the mutations, for instance. Sure. So one of them is, uh, you know, these hives that you attack normally have mm-hmm. static towers mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, you know, will kind of interfere and, and they'll hurt you guys and they'll shoot at you. Uh, but they're just kind of just sit there, and so worst case, you can just run away and say, ha you know, I'm just going to heal up and come back at you. One of the mutations uh, replaces all of those towers with mobile guys called guardians, and then if you try to run away with them, they'll chase you. And uh, they'll actually kind of spot you from farther away. And that really changes the way you have to behave because you can't just kind of slowly creep up, you know, bit by bit. Uh, they're actually going to push you back. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, one example. One of them that I hate, uh, please take this out of the game, uh, is when uh, uh, the hives will acquire those hardened, like, bunker points. Like, things will come out and create these hardened bunker points that take additional damage. So suddenly, where I used to be able to just push easily into a hive it becomes this incredibly difficult, almost trench warfare as new things come out and create these hardened bunkers and then it takes it's harder for me to push them back. Uh, I also hate shielded hives. Those are incredibly annoying. Please take those out as well. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll consider that as, that as mission accomplished <laughs> on, on my part. Uh, and then every now and then as I'm playing, and um, I played an early version of this maybe a year and a half ago, uh, it's, it's delightful to see what you've been doing over the last year or so. Uh, because I'll find some new mutation where I'm like, wow, that's really cool that he thought of that. And one of them that I just discovered last night, a hive started spitting out these assassins. And the assassins would come out in small groups, and they would go after my officer unit. They would zero in specifically on him. Now, it wasn't that big a deal because I could just make a point to, it would alert me when they're coming, I could see them coming, and I could have to dig in uh, and defend my officer. Um but it, it lent the game very distinct gameplay beats, uh, and it wasn't just pushing into an onslaught of aliens or holding out against them. It was being aware of when these assassins were going to come for my officer. Um, and what it reminded me of is a mission in StarCraft in, in StarCraft II called Night and Day, and you have a mission similar to this. Uh, and, yes. and, and, and in StarCraft II, I think that mission is kind of famous, and it's one of the last great bits of RTS mission design that we've seen. Um, and in that mission, uh, you would create a little defensive barrier and hold out against the Zerg, and then and that would be nighttime. And then during the daytime, they would stop coming, and you would go out and take out as many of their spawn points as you could. And then night would come, and you would fall back, and you would defend yourself. And then day would come, and you would sally forth. And it ended, it lended gameplay beats to this scenario. And you've done a lot of that kind of thing with these mutations, is they introduce new, almost dramatic structure. If you were to think of an RTS scenario as a little play, you've created new dramatic structures with these mutations. Um, so uh, the, the game that it reminded me of, and I don't know if you know this game, it's a, it's a fairly 
little-known indie game called AI War. Um, yep, I know them. And what I love about AI War is uh, you are – it has this asymmetrical structure where you as the player aren't just playing against other units that the scenario designer has to script, and they activate at a certain time, and they have the same powers as you. So you can maybe see that the AI is either not that good or super efficient or um, – it, it's just the same sets of rules, and instead of another human player, you've just got some scripting. But in AI War, what you would do is you would pick, where am I going to attack? Because wherever you attacked, you would unlock a special bonus, but also the computer player would get more powerful and start sending more things at you. So in Infested Planet, it's very similar when a new map starts. I look at all the hives, and I know that as I take them out, new mutations will be introduced. So I have to decide which point do I want to go after, because each point that I get gives me more upgrade points. And that's a finite pool. You know, Each of those hives is going to give me a certain number of upgrade points, which is going to let me either buy new forces or buy new abilities for myself or upgrade my guys. So I have to make the choice, where am I going to attack for a benefit? And as I do it, then there's a definite response. Um, so it, it reminded me a lot of that, and that, that back and forth I, I really like in, in the different scenarios. Um, yeah, a lot of the things that you mentioned are, were kind of very intentional, and they kind of stream from a lot of my frustrations with single-player RTS experiences in the past mm-hmm. uh, that really haven't, a lot, of, a lot of the AAA games really haven't addressed, like... You know, if you were play, if you played Command and Conquer way, way back in the day, like the first one, you'll remember that the way their single player worked for a lot of the missions was they had a timer, and some guys would come, and you would kill them, and then you wait a bit more, and some more guys would come, and it was like uh, you were like, well, why don't I just turtle and just wait for them to right. you know to all kill themselves? And that's not fun, right? Or for example, uh, you know what I found in StarCraft, uh, which you know is a game I love, I love to death, but uh, a lot of a lot of times what happens is You'll go, well, um, why don't I just wait a bit more? Why don't I just wait to gather a bit more resources so I can gather this gigantic blob of units and then just send it to the enemy? Uh, and there's really no penalty for doing that because the computer, you know, if you were playing multiplayer, the penalty would be that you're losing time and the, your opponent might be, you know, more developed and all these things. But in a single player, that that's really not a factor. Right. And, and so I kind of thought, well... Uh, what if uh, what if the resources were different? What if you mentioned the fixed resource system, right? The intent of that was specifically so that you know you couldn't just sit on your bum and wait for your workers to gather more minerals and build ten more units. It's like nope, you have to work with what you have, right? You have you have to use it in a bit more you know a bit of more of a clever way. You know, try to squeeze it out a bit more, um, and uh, or or for, you know with the mutation system specifically. Um, well, you know, one of the pacing is something I I kind of kept in the back of my mind for sure. Uh, another reason why it exists is because I noticed that uh, certainly when I play games, I, you kind of fall into patterns. Uh, you'll say, "Well, I like the grenade launcher, and it seems to kill people pretty well, so I'm just going to keep shooting grenades at people." And I know there is like 20 other weapons that some poor game designer tuned, uh, but you know, like the grenade launcher does a job, so why should I use anything else? Uh, and what, and the reasons one of the reasons the mutations exist is to say, "Well, okay, so you have your team that you like, that's great, uh, but." we're just going to introduce this thing that is going to kind of wreck your plans slightly. And you're going to have to adapt. And you're going to say, well, you know, your flamethrowers, you know, those don't work quite as well anymore. You're going to have to find a solution to that. Uh, so that's why, you know, kind of I really like the idea of mutations, is they, they force the player to explore all the possibilities in the game. Now, are the mutations always random? Like, is it, is it basically a die roll, what mutation is going to come out next, or do you ever script those? Uh, so for the campaign, they are scripted in everything except the last mission. 
Okay. The last mission has something. I don't know whether I should spoil it. No, actually, don't because I haven't gotten to it. Okay, yet. okay. So the last mission, the last mission uh, is the only mission in the campaign, exception. So there is like a scripted campaign, right? Uh, there are some branches of the campaign that are the random missions that are similar to the skirmish, but each of the scripted missions has mutations handpicked by me to kind of be cohesive. Mm-hmm. Except the last mission, which has some special things. Interesting. <laughs> All right. Good. <laughs> well, um, uh, so two things I want to highlight then that you've that you've brought up that I want to mention uh, and single out for folks listening. Um, those those side missions in the campaign. I love the campaign structure. Normally in a campaign where it is scripted, and I know I've got to do mission A, then B, then C. Uh, I feel like, okay, this is basically the developer. He's just created these for me, and I'm just going a, a pace. I, I really have no control here. I'm just doing these these set challenges in a set order. Um, once you get to a certain point in the campaign, you branch off, and you let the player do these optional missions. They're side missions. And I thought, well, that's kind of nice. I guess this is just to explore other avenues or new mechanics or to just introduce me to the skirmish option in case I want to go back to that from the main menu. But one of the things I really appreciate is you're letting me earn money there and unlock new upgrades that I can use in the main path um, so that I can just push through that main path if I want. And I can just beat my head against whatever challenge you want to throw at me there. But if I run into any resistance or I run into a hard mission, which is where I am now, I can just fall back and do these optional missions. And even, by the way, if I fail these optional missions, I'm still making some money. So I never feel like I'm dead in the water or just spinning my wheels. I'm always progressing. I'm always advancing. Uh, if it comes down to it, Alex, I feel like, you know what? This hard mission, I can eventually make enough money to just buy these one-shot soldiers and just plow over the difficulty level with manpower that I've earned from the money that you let me get in the side missions. So I really appreciate that dynamic feel to the the, the uh, main campaign. Thank you. Yeah. That's that's completely intentional. And by the way, I, I want to just kind of, uh, I guess, uh, do a shout-out, if you will. Uh, the the reason why it works that way is uh, it uh, my, my friend Shane Neville who um, worked at Relic in the past and, uh, you know, did some work in Company of Heroes. Uh, he uh, recently made a game, uh, you know, was a designer of a game called uh, Shellraiser, which is an iOS game. You, you basically pilot this turtle uh, with, like, weapons strapped on its back. <laughs> anyway, the, the thing that's awesome about it is uh, it has a kind of in-game purchases, Mm-hmm. But it's done in kind of a non-evil way because that's something I struggle with as a designer. You know, I want I want my players to just have an awesome experience. I don't want to be like milking them, right? Like my players are not some sort of farm animal, right? They're mm-hmm. they're like my friends, right? Like I wouldn't I wouldn't do that to my friends. Why would I Why would I do that to people who buy my game? Mm-hmm. Um, and the you know Shellraiser showed to me that you can do kind of in a purchase and these. A progression systems without it ruining the game, right? Without saying, you know, kind of that experience you have in, in World of Warcraft where you're like, I, w- I sure wish I was the next level, but I had, kind of have to kill 10 more boars, and I'm really <laughs> tired of killing boars, but that's what I have to do. It's like work, right? Mm-hmm. A- and I really wanted to avoid that. And the, the goal for the campaign was kind of to pace it in a way where um, you, if you wanted to, you could just proceed, you know, proceed through the campaign missions. But if you were failing, eventually, exactly what you would say would, would happen is you would just keep accumulating money, and then you'd be like, oh well, you know, I can, um, uh, I just because I was persistent, I can go through it anyway. So it's either skill or persistence, uh, and 
you know. And, and what I like about that is it seems like you then as a designer value my time. You appreciate the value of my time. Is rather than me just playing something over and over again until I break the scripting or whatever, I'm always getting a return for my time. And and so few games not so few, but but I, I always hate it when a game doesn't value my time, doesn't give me some return for the time I'm spending with the game. And I never feel that that's the case with the campaign here in Infested Planet. Um, hmm. Glad to hear that. So one of the other things that I love that you have done, and I don't know, I, you might actually be a little coy about this being a feature. Um, I, I feel that if you play Infested Planet long enough, you will realize this. Um, but once I realized how thorough it was, I, I love this about Infested Planet. So I'm playing along. I'm Let's say I'm one of the players, like you said, who loves uh, grenade launchers or whatever. So I put all my money in giving all my dudes uh, – let's go with shotguns because I love – one of the things I love in Infested Planet is that when you try a new weapon, it immediately feels like, whoa, why would I ever use anything but this? This is great. I'm always and only going to use this. And my first moment with that was shotguns. I'm like, you know, you have the guys with rifles. And when I first started playing, I'm, I thought, well, I'll just spend my money on getting extra guys with rifles. You know, more manpower is always good. So I would spend all my money into getting extra rifle dudes. Well, at one point, for whatever reason, I tried, rather than getting extra rifle dudes, equipping fewer dudes with shotguns. And then I was like, whoa, shotguns are awesome. That's all I'm ever going to use in this game. So for a while, I'm going along playing with just shotguns. And as soon as the mission starts, I give all my dudes shotguns, and it's great. But then, as you said with the mutation, some mutation will push back and render my shotguns less efficient. And I think that might be why I hate those bunker, those, those hardened aliens that come out. Um, but one of the things that you let me do is I can get a full refund for my shotguns. I can cash in and completely revise, because there's a very limited pool of upgrade points in any scenario, I can completely respend those. I, basically, I can freely respec my forces in the middle of a scenario. Uh, if I've built a bunch of mortars in a defensive position, and that defensive position is now secure and it's time to push forward, I just cash in those mortars for a full refund. Uh, and I love that you have done that. It, it's uh, it's an uh, almost unprecedented flexibility in an RTS. So there's an interesting story that goes along with that. By the way, that's completely intentional. Mm -hmm. um, and if you if you you know if any of you who are listening played Attack with the Paper Zombies, that's actually not the case. Uh, when you recycle things and Attack with the Paper Zombies, you only get half the resources back. And I have this whole theory in my brain, which is like, oh, these resources that, you know, you have one type of resources, the ones that allow you to throw grenades, they're like the dynamic resource, and they regenerate, and, and they, like, represent, you know, your, your ability to launch forward. And then, you know, I thought, well, this other resource is a static resource, and, you know, it re represents your commitment, right? And I had this whole theory about it going. And then one day, I was playing, um, I was in, I think, my friend's, uh, George's house, uh, and, and he was like, well why don't you just make recycling, give all the resources back? And I was like, I really don't want to, but you know what? It's like, because I had all these ideas. I was like, I'm grandmaster game designer. Like, this is like, I can't just change things. This is art or something, right? And then I thought, you know, screw it. This is just like one line change, right? You just change one number. And I did that change, and it was literally the best one line change I have ever done. <laughs> because, like you said, you know, you no longer feel bad about experimenting, right? Even, right. even in a game like... You know, Star StarCraft or something, you're like, well, I have this new unit, uh, let's say you get, you know, siege tanks or something, and you're like, well, I don't know what siege tanks do. Uh, you can build some, but you're like, well, what if, what if it's a huge mistake? What if it's not good? And you kind of feel a bit anxious. And, uh, the thing, the thing that was great about that change was, 
there is no penalty really. Like you know, you, you feel free to experiment, feel free to find new ways to to counter these mutations, mm-hmm. uh, and and that really freed up the game. So so and then from on from that on, I was like, this is great. I should take this as a base value for the game, which is like there's literally almost nothing you can do to screw up the game permanently. As long as you're willing to persevere and keep going. Uh, and try new things, you can probably beat every single level in the game. It's never never when you're like, well, this is horrible, you know, I should quit. It, it makes me wonder why that that's the given for us, as we assume when you build something, when you invest your resources, there's going to be an automatic inefficiency if you want to back off from that decision. And it's like game developers almost feel the need to punish players uh, if they don't commit to a certain decision. And I always thought that that was a bit weird, Um and it makes me think, actually, Alex, I don't know if you play action RPGs, but traditionally in games like Diablo, the idea is that when you buy a skill, you are committed to using that skill. And then if you want to buy a skill beyond it, you're working your way down a skill tree, and you're committing to a certain character build. And if you want to respec, well, okay, but you're going to maybe get some penalty, or you're going to have to use some rare item. But then Diablo 3 came out, and their whole approach was, you know what, when you level up, you have everything. You can just configure it however you want. If you don't like your character build, tear it down, slot new skills. Once you get to this level, we give it all to you. Um, so I feel that there's a, a certain awareness amongst developers, and you've certainly tapped into this with Infested Planet, that you don't really need to punish players for wanting to experiment and be flexible and flex your design. I mean, you've made this design. You've created this game. You should want us to, to experiment and tinker and play freely with it. Um, so I do love that. And that's, that, for me, was a real aha moment is, oh, so if I build this turret, you know, when I'm done with it, I still get those points. And I can, I can move the turret forward, for instance. You know, a, a fixed emplacement is never a fixed emplacement because if I want, just break it down and build it somewhere else. Uh, and I love that. Yeah, you know, if I might venture a guess for why game designers do that, uh-huh. a lot of it I think is historical, right? Because it's like, well, games previously did it. But I think also, you know, I think maybe maybe there's kind of different impulses as a designer, and one of the things you kind of are doing when you're balancing, right, is you, you don't want things that are too good, right? You don't want the gun that kills everything. So you kind of always have this impulse in, in the back of your mind, the kind of the balancing game designer impulse, which is like, if something is really good, there needs to be a downside, Right, mm-hmm. which is not always true. Sometimes something can be just really, really good, and you should just leave that alone, mm-hmm. right? But it's like knowing knowing where where you know where one thing applies, where something is really too good, and you say no, that's actually making the game worse. Uh, but also knowing sometimes when saying you know this is good and we're going to keep it, and I think you know designers don't always know when we you know which is where it's, it's case A versus case B. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, yeah. It seems like tuning, like I don't want to minimize, I can imagine what a pain in the ass it must have been to tune this really generous, flexible toy box that you've created. But it seems like your dilemma with if something's really good, you have the luxury, because resources are fixed in any scenario, just make it more expensive. Like, like it seems like you have this, uh, this ability in the game by just jiggering costs to therefore tune things. Like, for instance, I just unlocked the minigun. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll always start with a minigun. Oh, no, I won't, because it costs 14 upgrade points. Uh, so it, it seems like you're... Uh, well, how difficult was tuning for you, Alex? You know, I approached tuning in, in a kind of a weirder way. Price was certainly an issue of it. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, we have to remember why tuning is is really a thing. Like, why do we care about it? We care about tuning because we want to pr- a variety of choices to be good in a variety of different situations, right? Mm-hmm. If you had one gun that just destroys the entire level, and you're like, well, that's done. You nuke from <laughs> orbit, right? right. Well, uh, that's a boring game because it doesn't have any subtlety, right? You never you never have to say, well, what should I do? Which weapon should I use? Because you always know, you just press press the red button, right? Um, so really, the goal is is to have you know, it's not only even have a variety of different weapons, it's like different situations should imply different weapons, right? So in one situation, a flamethrower, you know, is, sure. should be good on the planet. In another one, you should, the flamethrower should be like the worst thing ever, right? <laughs> and, and, right, well, and, and you know, if you've played, if you play on the planet, you encountered the spitter mutation, right? Oh, where, yeah, of course. That, yeah, yeah. Right, where you have the ranged weapons, you're like, flamethrowers are horrible now because just <laughs> they can't get to anything, right? And that's that's very intentional. So what I look for when I do tuning is not uh, specifically to say, oh, there, there's you know the price should be high enough because you know price is only one type of downside. You're you're only kind of playing in one dimension. But there are many other interesting downsides you could add. Like for example, oh, it doesn't fire very far, or um, you know it's really good in one situation, but it's not really flexible, right? And and that actually forces the you know people playing the game to kind of compare really unlike things. You know, like for example. Um, you know the proverb when people say, well, you're comparing apples and oranges? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we kind of say, you know, take that as, as meaning, well, you can't really compare these things that are different. Well, the great thing about games is they can take two kind of different values that are completely unlike and bizarre and put them into one world, and then they can ask you, which one would you like? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, and then you can say, for example, you've, you've, I'm assuming you've played, you played um, you know, Crusader Kings, for example. Uh, yep, right? absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, exactly. I'd be very surprised if you haven't. Uh, and then, you know, that game you can say asks, is it better to be, you know, honest and friendly with people, or is it better to be, you know, a backstabbing bastard? Uh, you know, it doesn't quite ask the question that Machiavelli asked, which is, you know, is it better to be loved or feared? But kind of similar, right? And, and so, uh, speaking about downsides, you know, asking, asking, is it better to be powerful or is it better to, you know, to keep your money is kind of an interesting question, but there are also many other downsides. So it's not merely about price. And I've been very careful in Festival Planet not to just say, oh, it's too good, let's raise the price. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you kind of also have to ask, well, it's too good, maybe it should be a slower unit, right? Maybe it should not work with other units as well, right? Kind of it should be a lone wolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of, as far as when I talk about, think about balancing, I think more about choices versus just kind of piling on downsides. Well, one of the things that this lends the game that I think a lot of similar modest RTS puzzle type games do, don't have um, is there's a there's a clear it, it, as far as the game progression there are there's some back and forth that I feel you don't normally get in even in regular RTSs like the the temptation in a, in a regular RTS so I think the pattern in a regular RTS you mentioned before well why not just hang back and train up units until I've reached my unit capacity and then snowball over the whole map. So that's how a lot of those work out. Um, because of how you can rejigger your your guys and because of the mutations and because of the different sort of gameplay pulses, there's a lot of back and forth in Infested Planet where I'll be attacking and I'll think this isn't working. And rather than cancel and reload and start again, I fall back, you know, I regroup at a little healing station, uh, you know, I set up a defensive perimeter, I make sure my guys are healed, and then I maybe cash in and change some of my uh, equipment or rebuild something or, or reposition something. So rather than hitting a point where I realize, okay, this is lost, I feel like there's 
it, it almost feels like the aliens are, are sort of alive and they have personality. Like, okay, now they're winning. You know, now I'm losing. Now they're winning. Oh, now they're doing that crazy thing where one of the mutations is that when you destroy a hive, they do this super fast counterattack. So I feel like, okay, I destroy a hive. Now I have to dig in. Uh, you know, now I have to withstand the onslaught and wait for it to pass and then move forward. Um, so there's a lot of back and forth and surges. And there are even a lot of failures where all of my guys die. I basically have a party wipe. But rather than just restart the scenario, I just wait for them to respawn. I dig in, uh, and then I try something new. Uh, and I, I, I love that that dynamic feel to a scenario uh, that, that, that makes Infested Planet distinct for me. Um, well, and one of the things, by the way, Alex, and I'm sure you know this, that, that, that helps that is in addition to the fixed resource, you know, you capture a hive, you get, what is it, seven, eight, however, six, however many resource points added to your pool that you can spend. Um, in addition to that, there's the ammo resource, which when you're first playing, that just lets you designate um, targets for kind of a rocket launcher attack, which uh, is great for taking out towers and for damaging hives. But then once I discovered the, for instance, the helicopter strike, which was an, an additional use of it, and it's a use of the resource that doesn't that uses it in a unique way. I'm not simply spending the resource for helicopter attacks. Um, explain to me how that works and how you you came to create the helicopter strikes. Okay. Uh, well, so the first thing is behind the ammo resource in, in mm -hmm. general. That was meant to be a resource that is kind of, um, uh, you know, initially when when I thought of it, I thought it was like the the kind of the, the tiger lunging of the target, right? Uh, you know, like or, or a cheetah running or something. You know, cheetahs can't run everywhere, right? They can't just go, you know, lower the savannah. It's kind of, it's a very short-term action. It's kind of like and stamina, almost, like stamina in an action RPG or something. Yeah, so, or like, you know, you have a, your rogue um, energy, right? Right, fury. Where it's like, it's, it's like, called, right. it's, yeah, it's like, it's going to run out quickly, but while it's there, you're going to be doing, able to do kind of really amazing things. Right. Uh, and, and that was kind of meant to do some, some interesting pacing stuff. And then uh, I always like to ask, uh, you know, well, you know, this is a truth of the game kind of states, like, uh, you know, use ammo for rocket strikes. And when is that not true? Like, when is, when is it actually, is, you know, when is rocket strikes are not the best choice, right? And uh, when, I was, when I was making the helicopters, uh, so actually, interestingly enough, helicopters are a fairly late addition to the game. Uh, I think maybe a year ago or so. But uh, one of the reasons is I was kind of dissatisfied that uh, you kind of had two choices. One is either you use the, the ammo for rockets and you're happy and it's good, or you, you don't and then you kind of never never really have anything to do with the ammo, nothing, nothing interesting. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, what if, uh, what if there was another thing you could do with it? And uh, I thought of this whole idea of the helicopter, and, and, uh, and the reason why I liked it is because the helicopters allow you to reach out because normally your your power is concentrated very closely to your team, right? Right, or where you build fortifications, and, and so you can't really say, "Well, I want to blow something up behind the front lines." Uh, and the helicopters, the reason why I created them was because you could say, "I'm going to build this building that allows me to reach out all over the map and kind of troubleshoot everywhere," mm -hmm. and uh, that's a very new unique ability for for you know this specific game. Uh, and then, um, because it was kind of very, it was kind of, it's a temporary intervention, right? You don't want players throwing out helicopters all the time. There was a need to limit it at some point, and that's the function of the ammo resource. Uh, and so I said, well, it's going to use ammo. But it doesn't always, though, like because there's there's this uh, there's this payoff if you're patient 
And if you let the helicopter uh, basically recharge, if you let its refractory period take place, then it costs less ammo, right? There's this. Yes, idea exactly. that, yes. The, yeah. the, the ammo cost goes down. Um, you know, I think that was kind of a strike of, of lightning, kind of when I was thinking about it. Uh, I like. It's actually not a completely new idea. If you look at some of some other, like you look at the way World of Warcraft does some of the mechanics, which is, by the way, a game that is. Uh, has a lot of mechanical experimentation from the designers, like on a very small level. And you look at some skills, they'll apply damage up front. I think Flame Shock is actually one of those. Of course, they changed everything since they played it last, so who knows. But um, it'll apply damage up front, and then it'll also have a, a, a damage over time. Mm-hmm. So you can actually have a choice as a, as a player. You can say, I'm just going to spam this thing. And you get a lot of damage, but you use up your resources very quickly. Or you can say, you know what, I, I, I want to keep, you know, I want to be efficient. And you just, you know, you, you shoot it, and then you get the damage, you get the damage over time, and the damage over time expires, and you shoot it again. And that's the, and you have this continuum, and it's interesting, because on one end, it's like the op- most optimal usage of it, and you're getting the best bang for your mana. Or on the other end is you're getting the, the fastest damage. And as a player, you just you pick a point on that continuum. And it's not like multiple skills, it's just how quickly you use that skill. And I like that. Because yeah. it's kind of a very subtle but flexible thing, and uh, I just want to do that with a helicopter. So it kind of, it's not exactly obviously the, the the way that works is different because the price goes down instead of some sort of dot happening, but uh, kind of the effect is the same. That you can say, oh my god, I'm getting overwhelmed. I don't care about efficiency. I'm just going to throw <laughs> these things everywhere, or or you could say, you know what, uh, I you know I I want to wait a bit and. Uh, save up my ammo and use it for rockets as well as a helicopter later on. And you can do that too. Right. And it also gives the a helicopter... I mean, it, also, it already looks awesome. The helicopter flying out, unleashing rockets into a horde of aliens. I mean, that's so gratifying to see. Um, but it gives it this thematic sense of, you know, I've got to wait for it to fly back and refuel. Um, so, so thematically, as far as how it looks and how it plays completely different from any of the other weapons and abilities... Um, it just feels like a it, it's a it's a unique new toy that you get, and and when you start to play with it and experiment with it, uh, it's just really satisfying seeing how that works. Um, so uh, the um, the the different ways you can play Infested Planet. There's the campaign that we mentioned. Uh, you also have a skirmish mode, which, as near as I can tell. I can do pretty much anything with that skirmish mode. Like there's a ridiculous like you can pick a themed or, or a basically a name that's kind of a, a difficulty preset, I guess. Uh, and you can pick from a list of those. Or you can pick custom. And I, I can't think of anything that you haven't let me configure in a custom skirmish game. It seems like everything is unlocked. I can go through and look at all the mutations. I can start myself with a crazy amount of dudes. I can give myself whatever upgrades I want. Um, so it, it's got that as well. Um, Explain the thinking behind basically laying bare the entire game in the custom skirmishes. I think the the original thing I was trying to go with that direction was, uh, you know, it's funny, you you release a game and you get a very interesting look at your player base because uh, people who care about the game most tend to be very, very good at it. So the people who who will send you emails, who will send you feedback, who will talk on your forums are above average. Uh, and, and so you get this kind of interesting problem, which is uh, most of the people who are buying, you know, a game on Steam, uh, like, 
are trying to finish level five or something. And then you'll have you'll have people who really love a game, and they'll they'll send you messages and say, "I finished the game. You know, can you please add a, a one more difficulty mode?" <laughs> and it's right. It's a very difficult problem because because you're thinking, you know, I want to I want to keep you guys happy because you know you love this game, but also I need to do this something for this like other eighty percent of the player base. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the solution that I came up with it is, you know, I will never be able to cover everybody in the world. Uh, the the range of skill levels that exist. Somebody out there will always be like really really good at the game. Uh, so uh, you know even if even if I keep creating difficult levels, it's always going to be some guy out there is going to say, "Wait, it's too easy. I, I finished it." Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, well, why don't I create a custom mode where people can basically say, "You know what? Uh, you think that this is easy? Well, crank up the difficulty. I'm giving you the tools. You know, mm-hmm. set it to whatever you want." Uh, and then when I decided that, I went uh, back to the way I created maps and all the little different knobs that uh, random maps have, and I said, well, why why is it that this is the right setting? Like, why shouldn't I allow this? And I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to expose everything. Uh, and so it, it's almost like uh, almost like a, a MIDI modding tool, a mini modding tool, I suppose, sure. for, uh, for uh, skirmish levels, where... Uh, you can just, you know, some people have had a lot of fun with it, and they said, you know, the, the way I like to play is create the largest map possible and have, like, a hundred hives and the most possible <laughs> marines. And as long as my computer can take it, I'm just going to have this giant wave of dudes running around. And that's great, too, right? That's fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might not want to have that at every level, but that's that's awesome. So, you know, I think that's worked out really well. How difficult was it to get random maps right? Or was it? Uh, it was... Fairly difficult. I think Ashley did probably done some original work on that, as far as uh, you know, state of the art goes. Which isn't saying very much because state of the art on random map generation is not <laughs> terribly impressive. Uh, but uh, Attack of the Paper Zombies was first had random maps. The whole game was designed around random maps, right? When I was balancing it, like campaign is the late addition, right? This is uh, you know, it's kind of the newcomer to the scene. Random maps is something that I've done from the very beginning and how I've playtested the game. Uh, which I think is actually was very beneficial, right? Because you're not when you play a testing campaign, you focus very much on specifics. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you play testing through random maps uh, and you're designing through random maps, uh, you focus on are the systems good, are the weapon, do the weapons feel interesting, right? Uh, but the interesting thing with random maps, the difficulty there is how do you make interesting random maps? So I'll give you one measure that the game does to make interesting random maps. Uh, and this, I patched this in about a month ago or two months ago. It actually makes something like 10 or 20 of them. And then it will look at each hive cluster, and it will try to assess how difficult will that be to attack. So it will say something like, oh, you know, this hive uh, you know, is going to be this difficult, but wait, there are three more hives really close to it. So actually this is going to be really, really hard. And so it builds this kind of uh, almost like a stepping stone graph where it says, oh, you know, there is that hive, and it's only one hive, so it can't be too hard. And then, uh, oh, there, look, there is two hives close by, so it's, they're probably going to be a bit harder. Uh, and, you know, here's this giant cluster of ten hives. And then it tries to assess, uh, you know, these 20 maps that is generated, or these layouts, mm-hmm. uh, for, for a nice difficulty curve, right? So it actually tries to make a map with a nice difficulty curve for you. It's not just kind of placing down hives willy-nilly and just going, oh, good enough, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is kind of a... Uh, this is what people expect from random maps. It's just like stuff... Place things placed in random places, <laughs> uh, and this is more almost like you're trying to you're trying to take some of what a level, design, level designer would do, because a level designer would certainly, uh, when making you know maps, you know for all the scripted maps, they certainly did this. They would sit down and say, uh, well, 
you know, is is there a wall here, a difficulty wall that is insurmountable, right? It's a very basic game concept design. Uh, and so I kind of captured that a bit of design wisdom when I made the computer able to do that. It's kind of an AI level designer. I like yeah, that. yeah, in a, in a very small way. And this is something uh, uh, a lot of developers are interested in. Like, for example, if you talk to um, the Don't Starve guys, uh, they've certainly put in a lot of work to thinking. It's almost like AI level design there too, as well. Right. Uh, and it's kind of interesting. It's like something you don't hear people a lot of people talk about. But I think. Uh, you know, there is a lot of room to improve a lot of games here, right? Like, for example, um, you know, this levels in Diablo 3, right? Are those, I, I wonder how they lay those out. Are those just kind of randomly st- stitched together? Or does the game say, well, you know, first you want to have a, an easy group, and then you want to uh, have a bigger group, and then you want to have a break, right? Because that would be kind of interesting, you know? It, it basically, when you say that the, the state of the art in, in random maps is, is a low bar, I think that there's this thinking that, that randomness means the designer can opt out of tailoring the experience for a player. Uh, and it sounds like play, like, like, uh, Blizzard with Diablo 3, your situation with, um, Infested Planet. I think of the AI director in Left 4 Dead. There's this idea that just because something is random doesn't mean it can't engineer a type of experience. Uh, and I'm glad to hear you acknowledge that. Um, yeah, I think random just means, at least the way I think about it is, uh, you know, you can kind of, you play a game and you think of all the different variety of experiences that are possible with it, right? Not, even though there's only one level, you can, you can kind of wait when you're playing that, you think, well, there are rooms, and uh, what if there was a different room? What if you had a corridor and, and it was really narrow and zombies were coming into you from all the sides? And and when you're playing a game, it's almost like a, a field of experiences. And some of them exist in the game, but some of them are only imaginary. And uh, what procedural levels allow you to do is allow you to spread this field a bit further, right? And some and some of the levels are not quite as kind of well-designed and, and interesting, but as a result, it allows you to kind of cover more and more ground for this right. game. And um, obviously provide you know more playability uh, but also kind of explore the game in a lot of new ways and i guess just from a semantic level it's the difference between random and procedural isn't it i mean random is just it's random anything can happen procedural is there are still guidelines to make it playable to make it a satisfying experience yeah and i think that's a good distinction uh, and and what 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 really uh, just to let you know alex what what really proves to me that it's working with Infested Planet is when in, when a when a game starts in Infested Planet, I immediately hit the P key to pause it. And by the way, thank you so much for letting me not only pause it any time, that's pretty straightforward, but also give orders and and see the, the paths of the orders that I've given. You can fully play Infested Planet, as near as I can tell, when it's paused, you can do all the interactions, then you unpause it and they take place. Um, and a lot of times I forget that. Like things are falling apart and I'm getting attacked from every direction and I just need to remind myself, look, just pause, consider your options. But, but the moment a match starts, I will pause it and I will look at the map and I will get this picture of how the game, sh- how that match, how that map should proceed. Like, okay, here's a lone cluster and it's got its back to the cave wall so I can grab this hive to get these two over here. Oh, but look, this one over here has a couple of those little purple upgrades that'll get me spare points. They're kind of like crumbs or scraps left lying around. So maybe I should get that first. Uh, Here's some ammo uh, reserves so that I can push harder over here. But I pause the map and I look at it, and it creates in my head this expected game flow picture almost. Uh, and I guess in a way, I'm doing the same thing that the AI had just done to randomly create the map. Uh, yes. Well, the reason why the AI does it is because you do it. 
Yes, right. right? <laughs> it's anticipating so, me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's talk a bit about your artwork. Um, now, are you are you an artist? I, I apologize for not having looked at the credits. Um, but is this a one-man thing where you did the art? Did you work with artists? Uh, you're obviously a game designer. Uh, tell me how the, the work split up. I did the, the design and the programming. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I had uh, Matthew Martinson, who also works at Clay right now, interestingly enough, mm-hmm. uh, do the audio. I managed to kind of peel him off in his off time and uh, get him to do the audio. Um, and very and, nice audio, by the way. I love the distinctive sounds you. of the weapons. I, I love the the aliens. Just they sound angry and gross. Uh, so very nice audio. So thank uh, you. Yes, I think a lot of a lot of game designers and also uh, players to a certain extent underestimate how important audio is. Uh, so I was really happy to have Matthew. Like it's uh, people don't mention it, but actually it comes out on how how powerful the weapons feel and, yes. and what the ambiance of the game is. So yes. uh, so Matthew did uh, did the audio for the game. I had um, people do the music. Some of that was from, you know, kind of royalty-free music sites, but also had stuff composed. Um, I uh, the art is not done by me, but for mo- for the most part, I did. I did. I'm kind of the stopgap person. So like, if there's nobody else to do uh, things at the moment, I do them. Um, but the the art was done uh, by Greg Wolvend. Uh, and uh, he is actually, I think, he's better known in the mobile space than I think than the PC space. Uh, but if you look, he uh, he has quite a few games under his belt. Uh, uh, it, yes, it definitely pays to like it. It's it's such a welcome thing to be able to to tell at a glance. Like, and I, I guess because I love the shotgun, like I totally know what a shotgunner looks like. And because I hate those spitters with their little purple front, like I I can identify from a distance those spitters. You know, I I you you learn to. To, to vi- you learn the visual trademarks for the different powers and units. Uh, and for instance, I just figured out, for a while I was playing, and suddenly my guys would pulse blue. I was like, what, what is that all about? And then there's a moment where you think, oh, yes, right, that's the power of the officers to give you a sur- an offensive surge when you destroy a hive. So I appreciate that there's a visual component to all of these, these game design aspects, uh, and that, that's a really important shorthand as you're playing. To, to sort of remind you, okay, this is what this is, or this is this happening now. Um, so, uh, great job on the artwork as well. Thank you. So, you're the first person I've actually heard identify the officer inspiration pulse oh, specifically. No, I, and, I'm, and I'm very happy that at least one person in the world knows what that is. <laughs> no, that means get in there quick. You know, you take advantage yep. of this moment. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, finally, the other way to play, there's the campaign, there's the, the incredibly flexible skirmish mode. Uh, you have, there's no multiplayer. I, well, let me ask you about that. Do you get people, I'm not one of these, but I know there's a lot of them out there who are like, you know, Alex, I, this game needs multiplayer. This should totally have multiplayer. When are we getting multiplayer? Where's the multiplayer? I'm not buying this unless it has multiplayer. Uh, is that a part of your fan base? Always. I think any single player developer will get that question. I, and, uh, yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter what the game is. It could be like right. it could be like Tetris, right, or something. And and people will be like multi. Right. Uh, that just happens, right? Um, I'll, I'll tell you why multiplayer. So first of all, here's my stance in multiplayer. Uh, if multiplayer was to magically appear in Festive Planet tomorrow, I would love it. Right? Okay. That would be so as as a thing to have in the game. That would be awesome. Um, my personal reason is because I want to play with my dad. Like I just want to play co-op with him. I think that would be awesome. Um, he he uh, he plays games as well. He plays strategy games sometimes. And so if I could like pull him into the game and just uh, we used to play Red Alert uh, two together, 
you know, Yuri's Revenge was just brilliant. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, and so I like I, I those experiences I really uh, can I remember those very, them very fondly, and I'd love to have that. The complication with multiplayer, and the, the reason why it really scares me is this: multiplayer is really really hard to do for strategy games uh, because the the fundamental technical complication is that, especially in a game like this, you have like thousands of units on the screen, right? So the normal thing that you would, you know, the like a Quake server would do, which is just it would send everybody. It was like, oh look, there's a rocket here. Oh, there is, uh, so, you know, there's guys over here, right? But you can't really do because it would, would just be way too slow. The way you do multiplayer in strategy games is you actually have to take two computers and you have to, you have to make sure they run in exactly the same way, and you just synchronize what the players, you know, what the inputs are, and you just say, oh, uh, player one uh, stole these units to move over here, right? But but um, if any of that goes desynchronizes, you know, sometimes if you play strategy games, they'll be like, oh, error, desync, games, game has stopped, right? People wonder what that is. What that means is uh, something happened on one of the computers that made it run differently from everybody else. And then that's it, because it's like, you know, the proverbial, uh, you know, um, butterfly that causes a hurricane, mm-hmm. right? You have one unit that's slightly a bit off, and then, uh, you know, it... it you know, stops moving and starts shooting at something else where it wouldn't have on another computer. And then you give it a couple of seconds or a minute, and then that's it. You just can't play multiplayer because the players are seeing different things. Right. And to get that, it working that way is really, really hard. Okay. Uh, so, um, so that's one one factor. The other factor is, you know, I'm just not confident that for an indie game developer, this is something that I can uh, I can just pay my rent for. Pay, pay my rent on, honestly. I remember in Rock Paper Shotgun, uh, maybe four or five years ago, when uh, when Demigod was coming out, when De- Gas Powered Games was releasing Demigod, there was a, a statement that something like or, I don't know, like twenty five people uh, of their player base ever ran the multiplayer browser, like ever, right? Demigod is a multiplayer only game. They only have some tutorials offline. There is no single player whatsoever. And, and only 20% of their player base of a multiplayer-only game ran the browser once, that's a pretty scary number. So you have the combination of something that's really, really, really hard to do and something that, you know, at best, maybe 20% of, of your fan base will enjoy. Um, that's kind of a very scary combination of facts to me. So it's something I would love to have in the game, uh, but... I, I'm not sure whether I can I can sell myself on, on actually spending the time to do it, unfortunately. I, I also think, Alex, the, the specific design of Infested Planet, that push-pull with the AI and the, the choosing which hive you're going to attack and the mutations creating new global tweaks, it's so tailored to a satisfying single-player experience in a way that other real-time strategy games aren't. Where other real-time strategy games, when you plug in another player, it makes for a more satisfying experience to have that that interplay of the different toys. But similar to AI War, which Chris Park designed specifically for a single-player experience, uh, I I just don't feel like you would get... Yeah, co-op would be fine, but this is just so tailored to be satisfying with just one player against the AI aliens. Um, And there's no... By the way, something you will never hear, I think, about Infested Planet that is often a legitimate complaint about other RTSs, the AI is no good. Because, you know, you've created, uh, you know, AI isn't something being smart or, or necessarily efficient. It's something having personality. And you've created these dumb aliens that have certain rules that they go by, but they're, they're believable. And it's great AI because it's what I expect them to do. And they have personality when they do what they're supposed to do. Uh, and I don't feel like a, a 
player in that spot is necessary. Um, so at any rate, yeah, I, I don't mind the least that you don't have multiplayer. But here's the thing that you do have, and it's kind of like multiplayer. Uh, explain these weekly challenges that, that you're putting in the game. Right, so this is something that was inspired by Spelunky. Uh, and I played Spelunky, and I'm like, isn't this great? You know, it's the game. Spelunky is extremely procedural, right? And uh, and I thought, isn't it awesome that you could uh, basically make an endless stream of maps and then compare how well you're doing with everybody in the world? Uh, especially since with Infested Planet, uh, I suppose to some extent, you know, Spelunky is, is also considered to be a fairly difficult game in, in a fair way, but it's also quite challenging. Uh, but Infested Planet, you know, a lot of times, a lot of the feedback that I get is that it's fairly challenging on some of the harder difficulty levels. And uh, I thought, well, what if what if you're playing this really hard difficulty, but you knew that everybody in the world was also playing that level specifically, and then even though you were failing, you thought, well, hey, wait, there's this guy who managed to finish everything in 15 minutes. And like, how did he do that? And it's obviously possible. And and like, I want to learn how to do how to do that too. And there's this sense of kind of bringing everybody together to play the same experience. Mm-hmm. Now, by the way, the the mutations in weekly challenge mode are the same for everybody, right? That's what I assumed. Is that yeah? Because yep. then otherwise you would just get lucky with a certain mutation. So, yep, they're, so, they're the same. Yep. Now let me ask you this, actually, real quick. So do they? So so. To finish describing the weekly challenges, there, there are three difficulty levels. It's the same map, the same infestations. Uh, you know, you can spend your points however you want. Everything is unlocked. So you've got all of the tools at your disposal. Uh, and you're basically scored for how quickly you finish the map, how quickly you, you destroy all the, or you seize all the hive spots, right? Something like that. It's, it's actually the number one scoring priority is how many you seize. So if you give up midway, if you're just like, no, this is too hard. I don't know how to beat this. Uh, you still, and say so you capture half the map, uh, you will probably always beat the person who gave up on the hive before you did. Oh, so you don't, I guess that's what I wondered about, is that when I first looked at it, Alex, I was like, oh, this is just a timing thing, which is fine, but I could just play and then quit after getting a few hives and still register a score? Yeah, absolutely. Ah! The, the timing is a tiebreaker between people who, you lose, you gain something like, I think, 5,000 points per capture, and right. you lose one point per second. So you would literally have to sit there for like an hour or something like that, to, <laughs> right? To just to equal, which I suppose is not impossible. But you know, the average, uh, the average length of the game would be something like thirty minutes on like really hard difficulty mode. Could yeah. be like thirty minutes to forty-five minutes. Um, so yeah. So then here's a question I have uh, for my own uh, selfish reasons, as I'm trying to optimize my score. The way the mutations progress is it no matter which hive. I conquer, it will unlock the next mutation, or does a certain hive unlock a certain mutation? Uh, the the order of the mutations is fixed. Okay. So it's, it's merely, like, as you capture, it's always going to be the same, for the same level. So I guess what you would want to do to really optimize is, is play a few times, know in advance what mutations you're going to be facing, uh, and sort of prepare for that, or... Uh, uh, you can sort of play through it several times, and the more you play through it, the more you'll know about what's coming and the better you can prepare. I think that would be a factor. Um, a lot of times, uh, you know, you can just adapt quickly enough and you don't kind of need to memorize things. But I, ha- I remember very distinctly the very first challenge I played with everybody, I think. Uh, and I consider myself a fairly good player, right? Because, you know, I have been 
playing this game and you know designing it for quite a while. Uh, but it was just this uh, the, the hardest challenge difficulty, and I ran into a position where I had this forked path, and because I had taken one of the forks, uh, the aliens were and, and mutation was appeared. They just kept battering me, and I was like, "Well, wouldn't it be nice if I uh, actually consolidated my position somewhere else?" And of course, I'm losing time. Uh, and in that case, I was like, "You know what? Uh, I'm just going to restart, and I'm and knowing what's going to happen in the future, right. I'm going to." Take the other path and and hold the position down. So yeah, it, it's it can be a factor, but that's kind of really main maxi. Uh, I think if you just kind of develop really good intuitions about what's good in the game and the way you should defeat certain mutations, right? And uh, use those, you will probably be in the top ten for sure. Well, and to be fair though, for a scoring challenge, min maxi is fine. Like if people are trying to get a high score, and if I am just trying to eke out a few more positions on the leaderboard, uh, you know, I, I'm going to min max that. You've given me a scoring mechanism, Alex. I'm going to do what I can do. Sure, score. yeah. If you, it's, it's, you know, it's different players play differently. I'm certainly that was the intent of weekly challenges: is people looking and say, saying, you know, wait a minute, this guy beat my score. Right. I, I want to beat him now. Right. Uh, so the, the game is out today. Uh, this is, I believe, no, March. No, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. no, no, no. Sorry, it's uh, it's going to be out tomorrow because uh, it's Wednesday today. If I, if my, there we go. Yeah, so it's going to be out on Thursday. Okay, so out on Thursday. Uh, what is the price point for it? Uh, the normal price is fifteen dollars, mm-hmm. uh, and it's going to have a twenty percent off sale. Uh, you know, for the next week at least. Uh, it has Steam achievements. Uh, I, I don't know if you get this. Do you get people asking about trading cards? I think I had, like, one person ask me. Okay, I, I can guarantee you, Alex, you're probably going to get more questions about that. Uh, and um, let's see. Uh, is it available outside Steam? Yes, so you can buy it uh, on my site. Okay. Uh, or you can buy it you know, just via www.infestedplanet.com, uh, and you'll get a DRM-free version there as well as a Steam version. So right. it's really um, there is there is kind of uh, as far as a reason why you wouldn't want to get that version. There is really no reason because you get a DRM free version plus a Steam version. Right. Um, though interestingly enough, actually at on launch week, I kind of would prefer if people bought Butterfan Steam versus my site uh, because that way because Steam looks at how well your game is doing. So if sure. just hordes of people ran and bought it in my site, Steam would be like, well, <laughs> lots of people are registering keys, but. Like, we're not getting any money. Um, uh, and I, I know you've been very hard at work on this for a very long time. What do you say to folks who, I, I, this is way premature to ask, but what do you say to folks who ask you about if there's any sort of a roadmap for additional things down the road? Uh, have you just been looking at launch and that's where you're sitting now? Or do you have uh, plans for anything additional for Infested Planet in the near future? I haven't specifically planned things out, like not to the point of promising them, mm-hmm. but you know what? I'll I'll, uh, I'll, I'll spill some secrets here. Uh, I really want, you know, I'm really enamored with the way Paradox does their patches, mm-hmm. and I've, I'm a big uh, fan of Crusader Kings, so I've kind of followed that very much. Uh, which is they they release patches that improve the game, they they add new features, uh, but they also coincide those with ex- like expansion packs or really meaty DLC, which unlocks new parts of the game. So it's a nice symbiosis between people who are willing to pay for the DLC and people who just want to see the game expand, but maybe don't quit or maybe want to wait for the DLC, wait for a sale. And it's you know it's not just like all DLC or all free. It's kind of this nice uh, 50-50 of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I'll try to imitate that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly parts of the game which I think are shared, I think uh, there is no point to split people on them. 
but I also do want to try some sort of uh, maybe small DLC, adding new mechanics or something like that. So I'm thinking about that. I don't. I don't want to say announce anything right now because you know if, if I change my mind, people will be disappointed. But certainly, I am thinking. You know, after the launch, one thing that I'm, I'm actually um, fairly sure I will do is I want to do a demo for the game because uh, as I as I watch how people respond to the game it seems like people kind of fall into two groups they'll they'll like watch the video and they'll be like i don't understand this is just another tower defense game and they're right. like no you don't understand how, do we, can I, how can i tell this to you um and then i, some I people, have to say alex it never occurred to me having played it never occurred to me to think anybody would confuse infested planet with a tower defense game but i can imagine just showing someone a video without like giving a sense right? of that back and forth yeah yeah exactly yeah uh, uh, exactly, and I never think of it as a tower defense game. But like, I get that reaction, and I'm like, wait, that's just, that's not what I, that's not what the game is. Um, and then people who play the game, a lot of their times, the reactions are like, wow, thank you for making it. It's you know, it's like really unique and really deep. Uh, and and I realized that the only way to understand the game and and why you'd want to play it is to actually play it. Right. right. Uh, so I think uh, you know, demos are kind of going out of fashion. Uh, but uh, I think maybe in this case, it might be a good idea to spend some time and make uh, a demo. Well, uh, Alex, congratulations. I'm just tickled with how this turned out. Uh, I remembered seeing it, as I mentioned, a year, year and a half or so ago and thinking, wow, I'm looking forward to this. And uh, I had no idea I would like it as much as I do. I mean, I, I thought it was going to be something very cool, but I didn't realize it was going to be something as special as it is. So congratulations on how it turned out, uh, and I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you. Well, that's great. That's just fucking great, man. Now what the fuck are we supposed to do? We're some real pretty shit now, man! You finished? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. What the fuck are we gonna do now? What are we gonna do? Alright, so there you go. 15 bucks on Steam. Um, I, if, if you're into RTSs, you are doing yourself a disservice if you don't play this. Uh, one of the interesting things that Alex, uh, and Alex and I talked about when we weren't recording, um, he, he said he made the game specifically for hardcore gamers like, like me. Guys who have come up through RTSs, guys who really like uh, d- deeper, challenging designs, games that push back. Um, I don't know. What am I? Am I a core gamer? I guess we'll use that. Core gamers. Uh, he said he made it for guys like me. Uh, but in the course of talking, you know, and he mentioned in the interview playing with his father, uh, he talked about how his, his father wanted to be able to pause and give orders and how that was something he did specifically for his dad. Which, when he said that, I was like, well, yeah, that, that makes sense. But, oh, by golly, it made me feel so old, because now, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how old Alex is, I don't know how old his father is, but that struck me as the kind of thing I would ask for, is, hey, Alex, let me pause and give orders. You know, sometimes a real-time game is great and all, but I like to be able to slow it down if it doesn't have a variable speed. An even better thing to do is just pause it and assess the situation. Uh, and you can, of course, pause Infested Planet, but while it's paused, you can interact with it entirely. So uh, Alex did that uh, for his dad, uh, and uh, that's also something that I appreciated. So thank you, Alex, uh, for me and, and your father, I guess. I, I'm sure he appreciates the feature as well. Uh, so thank you for joining us for the interview this week. Uh, next week, uh, as I mentioned, I, I'm guessing we'll be talking a little bit about Titanfall. That is out next week, right? Do I have my dates wrong? Um, we'll see. So uh, join us for that next week. Uh, I am Tom Chick. Thanks again to Alex for sitting down and talking Invested Planet with me. And we'll see everyone here next week.